Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. Please enjoy today's guest, who is a senior minister in the UK, and he has a background in physics and astronomy. He's been a researcher at the European Weather Centre and the Met Office here in the UK. No wonder he has a doctor as a prefix, and the good doctor himself became the new messy science coordinator. Now that he has retired, he wants to inform as many churches as possible about science. Consequently, our guest has made some very professionally made videos available on YouTube, looking at faith and the environment. So, what does a science coordinator do for Messy Church? What is Messy's Church? What's his background regarding astronomy? So many questions to ask him. And we might even throw in Charles Darwin as well, see what he says about that and him. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, and that is Dave Gregory. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you from, good sir? Great to be here, uh, Martin. I actually live in Newport Pagnell, which is on the northern edge of Milton Keynes. One of my favourite bands of all time is XTC. The lead guitarist is also called Dave Gregory. So I'm wondering, how many times have you been mistaken for the other Dave Gregory? Never. Like everybody, you Google your name every now and again, don't yeah. you? And uh, Dave Gregory or David Gregory. And uh, you find an, an interesting, an eclectic mix of people, you know. I think top of the list is some kind of TV journalist in the States. But that has never come up, XTC. But you're not Dave Gregory from XTC, because if you were... Nope. It'd be a very interesting podcast of a different type. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I'm probably going to have to look him up now, aren't I? You are. Anyway, moving on, let's get back to the other five questions, if that's right, Dave. Yeah. Question number one, if you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask him questions, who would it be? I love history. You know, a, a good night out for me and Carolyn is going down to the British Museum and going around their exhibits or one of the special exhibitions. And I love history because I had a great history teacher at school, Mr. Truman, he taught me for three years and, and it kind of he installed a love of history in me. You know, of all the characters in history that they are, I would like to invite the Emperor Claudius, the Roman Emperor Claudius. Oh, really? Interesting. And the reason I think is, is when I was a teenager and, and getting into history, the BBC broadcast I Claudius. They did. Eric Jacobi and Brian Blessed. And it was. And and we watched it again. And it's still watchable. It makes a bit like a film play rather than a TV drama you get these days, but it's still very watchable. In a sense, that got me very interested in Roman history. And Jacobi, Derek Jacobi plays him very sympathetically. So I'd like to invite him for dinner to see if Jacobi's depiction of Claudius is accurate or not, or whether you know there's a different side to him. Because he gets a lot of critique in the Roman authors. So, uh, yeah, that'd be interesting. So for those that are listening, saying, I've heard of Claudius. I thought yeah. his name was I Claudius, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about him? Um, he was, was he the fourth Roman emperor? So he was related to the first Roman emperor, Augustus. He was the fourth Roman emperor. Jacobi depicts him as, as a cripple, disabled, with a stammer. And that seems to be borne out by recordings at any status kind of thought to be a bit of an idiot at times yeah. and yet you know became roman emperor and was fairly okay as far as the records go as a roman emperor invaded england uh, invaded the british isles and conquered the british isles although he was only here for about a week or two weeks 
didn't like the food probably not <laughs> so yeah i just find him an interesting character that this you know he's not the kind of strong leader you might expect to find will be roman emperor you know he seems yeah. to have a lot of flaws and, and seemed to be forgotten about by his family and yet you know he ended up well he was it was a praetorian god who kind of made him emperor really and yet he did a decent job so i think it's an interesting character okay you say decent job good egg or a bad egg as far as us brits were concerned well he conquered england didn't he he took the leader of the british tribes back to rome for the triumph and by all accounts he gave a speech to the senate this british leader and they were so impressed by that they didn't execute him they they kind of gave him a pension and, and he lived in rome for the rest of his life so wow i mean it was a brutal age but actually sometimes they show generosity and spirit as well yeah wow that's amazing the fact that the british leader or whatever he was able to speak their language i mean that's pretty well much. yeah i don't think britain was as isolated as we like to think it wasn't as uh backward as we as we like to think it had a sophisticated culture shall we say. question two yeah who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable please young dave there's a story in the bible of naaman the syrian who has leprosy and comes to the prophet elisha to be prayed for and healed and does get healed in the end he comes rather reluctantly really but it's not him and it's not elisha but at the start of that story there's a character who's just called a servant girl who says or says to Naaman's wife, if only he would go to Israel to see Elisha the prophet, I'm sure he will be healed. I, I like her, unnamed. I think servant is a very positive way of putting it. If we're honest, she was a slave, probably caught in a cross-border raid, dragged off to Syria to be enslaved, serving an important family in the Syrian army. And yet, you know, from where she was, she did a bit. God used her in that yeah. in that setting. And I like that. That resonates somehow with me that from nowhere. You know, God uses somebody who is a minor character in the story. Most people would think, and yet he doesn't think so. Yes. And she's important. She's recorded. We don't know her name, but God God used her. That's my favourite Bible character. That's very good. I think, actually, you're the second person to choose the oh. unnamed person. Okay. Very well done. Who was the other one? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. Because <laughs> you can't remember, can you? I can. It was a previous guest. Okay, let's not. Let's leave it at that. I can't remember. <laughs> it was way back. Choose a number between okay. one and ten. It's one of those, I think. Right. I hope I'm in good company then. <laughs> yeah, I think you would be. Question three. If you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? I would like to make a law that everyone has to think twice before speaking or pressing send on an email or a message on social media. Excellent. Just to pause and think, do I really want to say that? I guess I guess this goes back to my time when I first started working at the Met Office before we had kind of emails and everything was done by memo. I remember developing a principle. If I if I was really cross about something and I needed to write a difficult memo or a difficult memo, I'd write it in the afternoon and I'd put it in my drawer, lock it away overnight, and I'd do it the next morning. I'd take it out, I'd read it, and I'd throw it away, start again. I kind of started to do the same thing with emails as well. I'd save drafts and I'd think twice. And I just think people react too quickly these days. And and often what they react very quickly is very critical, you know, sometimes very sadly very abusive. And I just think we need to take a step back and think how we're talking to one another, be more gracious to one another, be more understanding to one another. And I think that goes right across society. Not it's not just politicians who suffer from this. I think it goes into our churches, into our schools, you know, it's all over social media. 
just got to learn to to talk better to one another. Yeah, absolutely. Reminds me because I've shared in the past that I used to be a training officer, right. and uh, we used to say, and "This is going to work really well on radio." We're giving two of these, two of these, and one of these, using them in the right. right proportion. Yeah. Which obviously you're pointing to your ears, then your eyes, and yeah. for those listening to radio, your mouth. So yes. Yeah, that's an old old saying, and it, it yeah. is the truth, and we perhaps need to remember it again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Me included. And me. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Thank you, sir. I like that. You can be Prime Minister for the day, will it? Thank you. Question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out? I, I wasn't quite sure what the boundaries of family events were. Okay. Open for debate. I picked two, really. One kind of linked to, to my ministry and one more private. You know, for my 60th birthday, my wife and I walked up Kinder Scout in, in the Peak District um, for the day. And... You know, she asked me, what do you want to do for your 60th birthday? I said, I want to walk kinder. I've walked up kinder many times. The first time when I was 16 on a geography school field trip. And I've gone back with friends. You know, I walked it on my own about uh, five years ago when I was traveling around the country as Baptist Union president. And I, I was going to Sheffield. So I went to kinder, Edale, Peak District. And I walked up on a perfect blue sky day, which is unusual on kinder. And it's just so flat and barren and... We walked up from the other side on my 60th birthday onto the top and you know we started off with coats on because it was cloudy and a bit chilly even in june but you know by the time we got to the top the clouds had cleared it was a blue sky day and it was so clear you could walk across kinder you have to be careful walking across kinder because it's featureless so we could see the other side of it and um, the rocks on the other side of it so we just aimed for them and went to a place called kinder downfall where water falls down a you know a cliff face yeah, it was just a great day. And I, it's just a place that I like barren landscapes. It's strange. Uh, people like all kinds of different barren landscapes. For me, barren landscapes, somehow I, I connect with them. There's a peace oh, wow. about them, a calmness about them. They can be wild as well, but yeah. maybe that's part of the excitement as well. I, di- I didn't know if that was family or not, so that's a bit cheeky. I don't know if it's a favourite day out, but it was a significant day out. I got to go to be part of the Cenotaph Parade in 2018 which was the 100th anniversary at the end of the second world war first world war first world war yeah that was a deliberate question to check me out wasn't it i was listening i was yeah yeah i was representing the baptist union standing there with the faith leaders at the center oh wow i mean it's fascinating to meet people to chat to people you know we're inside the foreign office you know so mps and army leaders and foreign secretary and things like that who were really interesting to speak to but i think the most significant moment for me was at one point in the service, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And so you're standing in the heart of government yes. in a public setting and we're, we're praying the Lord's Prayer. And for me, that was an incredibly significant moment for me. Why? You know, I've done a lot of walking and praying outside yeah. and, and praying around estates, prayer walking. And, and I guess it was part of that. You know, here we are, Christians, people of other faiths, you know, praying to God in the heart of government where prayer is not always and faith is not always raised up. And yet we have this moment. We have this moment when we can can ask God's help and actually commit ourselves to seeking God's help yes. in, in the heart of our national life and in this moment. So I guess that was why it was significant for me. Yeah. yeah. Really, for interest purposes, I could just yeah. imagine the politically correct brigade mm-hmm. who might have been involved in getting everything together. So, oh, you possibly can't have the, the Lord's Prayer on this day because we've got other religions, other faiths coming here. I wonder what they thought of it. I don't know, but... The service at the Cenotaph is is Christian. It's led by the Bishop of London. So there are people from other faiths there. You know, I'm standing there with with Muslims, Hindus, yeah. uh, Sikhs, uh, Farsi, 
different Christian groups, and yet everybody seems to think this is a worthwhile thing to do, not only yes. you know, to honour honor the people who lost their lives so long ago and are still losing their lives yes. in different places around the world. So I don't know what they thought, but they did join in, yeah. which is interesting. Well, question five. Yes. <laughs> well, here we go then. Drum roll, please. What yeah. has been your most embarrassing moment, please, Dave? You mean the most embarrassing moment I'm, I'm willing to share? Yes, that is very good. You, yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are lots, aren't there? You could choose them. <laughs> Recently, my most embarrassing moment, we uh, we did a messy church event at Southwark Cathedral. It had been delayed by COVID, so it was, you know, May 2022, Southwark Cathedral. Great day, lots of experiments, about 100, 120 people there. Bishop of Kingston there. And I do the finale experiment, the big experiment, and I'm bigging it up. And it was an experiment called Elephant's Toothpaste, where this foam comes out of the bottle, Coke bottle. And it looks like elephant's toothpaste. It looks like a tube of toothpaste bringing out this mass. Oh, is it where you put uh, a mento? No, 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 no. I don't do that one inside. You get coke, you get messy coke all over the altar. This one is, um, it's basically yeast and hydrogen peroxide mixed together and it releases oxygen and a bit of washing up liquid in it and red food coloring just dribbled down the bottle. So you get the kind of toothpaste coming Gives out of the red stripe. Yeah. That... Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So I was doing the experiment. I added the yeast and Absolutely nothing happened. So, you know, I added more, nothing happened. I ran off stage to get some more yeast and put that in. Nothing happened. They thought, everybody thought this was part of the act, you know. Yeah, yeah, Tommy Cooper. So I had to admit it was it had gone wrong. That was a little bit embarrassing in front of all these people. But, hey, that's science for you. Sometimes they work. The lesson is, you know, because of COVID, I hadn't done this thing for a couple of years. The yeast had died in the interim. Oh, of course, yes. So uh, that's why I should have really practiced practice makes perfect is what i tell everybody with these experiments and i didn't follow my own lesson so there you go uh, so a recent embarrassing moment is a good one though <laughs> you said for yourself it's not the only time a science experiment has gone wrong <laughs> oh god share another one then come on please well no that happened after covid as well uh, at uh, messy church international conference i was launching uh, one of the things I, I launched rockets i launched prayer rockets really so this was a really big prayer rocket it uses air, compressed air, to launch it, really. And I was being filmed. This was being filmed for the video of the conference, and it it just didn't launch. <laughs> so anyway, I got it working the next time I did it, but that was too late. We weren't filming that. What exactly is a prayer rocket? Oh, it's something I've been doing for a number of years, really. You get this thing called stomp rockets. You come across a stomp rocket where you, you have a rocket and you, you kind of press a pump and the rocket flies off. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I've got a piece of kit like that which uses a plastic drinks bottle at the end of some kind of piping going along the ground and then up in the vertical you just take a bit of paper and you can write your prayer on it and then you roll it up into a tube and you know see this at one end you can decorate it as well with flames coming out of the back or make it look like a rocket and then you put it on the the launcher and we all say three two one amen you stamp on the bottle rocket launches up and it's kind of launching your prayers to heaven so it's something i use with families Sometimes I, I launch them over maps of communities. We, I, get, I get the families to draw a map of their community. And so we'll do prayers of blessing over their community. Yeah. Or I've started doing them when I do kind of more environmentally themed, what we call messy church goes wild session. Yeah. I'll, I'll get them to make a collage of the earth. And they can write prayers for their fears for the earth about climate change or hopes for the earth. And then we'll launch them over the planet as a, as a sign of blessing for the earth. Really. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a kind of an active way of doing prayer. Some people say it's a bit silly, but actually 
I think the kids get a lot. The kids and the families get a lot out of it, actually. Yeah. How many thousands of feet does it go up into the Not air? Not very much. No. I can do this inside. <laughs> <laughs> so they then catch the rocket as well when it comes. Well, down. funnily enough, when I was inducted as Baptist Union president, yes, uh, they get they only gave me about seven minutes to speak to uh, National Assembly because we'd gone from a three day assembly to a one day assembly. So I was introducing my theme for the year of divine windows, glimpses of God in life, the universe, and everything, and. Um, yeah, so I've got seven minutes. I need to make an impression. So towards the end of my talk, I brought my rocket launching kit onto the stage and I had a prayer for the Baptist family, which I'd written onto the rocket. And so we read it off the screen. And at the end of it, I did three, two, one, amen, launch the rocket out into the audience. It, it went and I said, whoever picks it up can keep it. So anyway, I don't know what happened to the rocket. I was invited back to Leicester to speak at a gathering of Baptists at the church I used to go to when I was at university there. And I went to that church when I wasn't a Christian. It was part of my Christian journey to becoming a Christian. Oh, so wow. they invited me back to speak in this church, which was a really, oh, you know, emotional yeah. thing to do, really. And at the end of it, the man who was the treasurer of the Baptists in the East Midlands came up to me and said, I've got your rocket. No. Yeah. So, you know, God uses silly things. Wow. <laughs> and actually, if you ask, that is what people remember of me being Baptist Union president. Well, do you know what? You've mentioned messy church a few times. Yeah. I mentioned it at the top end. Yeah. Before we get into the real nitty gritty of where we're going to end up on this, this journey today, tell us more about, for those that don't know what messy church is and how you got involved in it, please, Dave. Yeah, so messy church is a pioneering kind of way of doing church. and. I think the mistake people make, they think it's all about children. Yeah. So children, I'm sure. It's not, it's families. It's adults, children, grandparents, parents, kind of worshipping together, exploring the Christian faith together in a way that's relevant to them. So you don't find us sitting in pews. You'd find us sitting in the floor. You'd find us gathered around tables doing craft activities, colouring, sticking, painting, making stuff. It's kind of grown over the last, what, 15 years from starting in, Lucy Moore started it in a, in a church in Portsmouth where her, her husband was was the vicar. You know, it's spread all over the UK and all around the world. So I think it's in about 15 different countries now. You know, Germany, Denmark, Norway, England, Scotland, Wales, America, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. So it's it seems to be something that, that connects with people. and. The, the great thing I think about it is a large proportion of people come have had no connection with church before. Mm. So more than half the people who come won't have gone to a typical church before. So it's a way of connecting with wider community and people who just want to explore faith. And it's based around certain core principles, which they call, interestingly, they call the DNA of messy church. It's kind of intergenerational and it's about celebrating together. It's about being creative together. It's about community. There's always a meal that is shared at the end of it together. And it's, you know, and it's centered on Jesus as well. You know, it's impacting people in this country and all around the world wow. in a fresh way. So, yeah, my first kind of experience in Messy Church, we started a Messy Church in my last church, uh, Cross Green Baptist Church, uh, about 10 years ago. I kind of done similar things to Messy Church in the past in my previous churches, but we didn't call them Messy Church. Um, because we weren't, we didn't have the people perhaps that we needed to to do them as well as we could have done. 
And so we started Messy Church off. We had a new associate minister at the church, Lisa Kerry. She was a family's minister and pastoral yeah, yeah. minister. So, you know, she was going to launch Messy Church. And so I wasn't going to get involved in Messy Church at all. I was going to leave it up to her and, and John, who was the youth minister. So they, they did the first session. And halfway through, I thought, I'll just put my head in and see how it's going. And uh, I, it was pandemonium in there. They had 100 people in the room just from the local community. We ran it on a Wednesday afternoon after school. And all these people had turned up. People we had contact with, yeah, other yeah. people we'd never met before. And so we, after that, I said, okay, we, we all need to get involved in this. It, it's too big. So I got involved in Messy Church. And the science came into it because we found that some of the older boys were getting bored. Kind of, We were running up to kind of age 11, 12, and we found some yeah. of the older boys getting bored. So I just said, I'll do some science experiments, which I'd done before in fun days. Yeah. But my wife's a scientist as well. She's a chemist, so she'd more done them than me. So I, I started doing simple science experiments and it wasn't just the boys who came, it was the girls, which is great because, you know, getting girls engaged in science is really important. And it wasn't just the older boys who came, you know, I had five-year-olds coming with their parents to do these science experiments, very simple science experiments using kitchen equipment. And so out of that and, and contact with Lucy Moore, who ran Messy Church, out of that came this thing called Messy Church to Science, which I kind of edited the book. We had lots of contra people who contributed experiments to it. I edited it all together. There's a book involved. All right, brilliant. Yeah, Messy Church to Science has been out about six years now and is still still available, which is amazing. And I became known as Dr. Dave. There's a little cartoon character of me in a white coat, which an avatar, they said, can we make a little avatar of you? So I said, yeah. So I'm known as Dr. Dave in messy church circles and sometimes beyond that as well. Wow. I want to explore a bit more on this, if that's right, because, as you know, it's called off-grid Christianity. Yeah. And I'm very concerned that there are people listening today who might just be on the fringes of saying, I'm fed up with church or I don't want to go to church anymore. Yeah. And we're bombarded on the BBC in particular. You know, with science programs yep. and want of a better word you know god doesn't exist basically yeah no doubt you get people coming up to you saying look my faith i can't believe in god anymore because science says he did not make the world what would you say to that please that's quite common isn't it that's an assumption that science has triumphed over god and if you have science you, you don't need to believe in god now, I, I understand why people say that because you know, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a Baptist church. And at 14, I think very wisely, my parents gave me a choice. They said, do you want to keep going? And I said, no. And so I stopped going. And one of the reasons I stopped going was that I was getting really interested in science. I, I've been interested in science since that primary school age um, because of the Apollo missions in the 60s and 70s. That's how I got into science. And for me in my teenage years, you know, I, I didn't see the need to believe in God at all. Um, because science explained everything. Um, so I understand why people say that. And often after a few weeks of families coming to Messy Church, a parent would draw me aside and say, isn't it a bit odd, this? And I'd say, what? And they said, well, you're a minister, and yet you're doing science in church. How does that fit together? You know. So I think people find it a bit puzzling when churches try and do science. And sometimes I think people in churches are a bit frightened of science. So I hope things like Messy Church of Science debunk that one that debunks the fear of science in the church, but it also tells to people actually church is interested in science. This is part of God's world and part of the gift that God has given to us. Yeah, I understand where they're coming from. You know, science was why I became a Christian in the end. <laughs> well, tell us more then. Yeah. So, I, you know, I went to university not believing in God. I was doing physics and astronomy and, and I met people doing the same course as me who were Christians and that 
puzzled me no end. Why could they believe something so stupid? You know, when they were very intelligent. But I think as I went along, and the more I saw how the world fit together and how science kind of described it, its order and its unity, I was walking to a lecture one day through the streets of Leicester, and I suddenly thought, well, maybe there is a God behind all of this. And that was the really the start of me starting to explore faith. So I, I would say science kind of led, started to lead me to that point. Mind you, the next question that came into my mind was, um, what's that got to do with me? And that took me a while to figure that out as well, about three years before I kind of became a Christian. In what way? It, becoming a Christian. Yeah, well, it took three years. And the, the expression, what about me, sort of thing. Yeah, well, you know. Expand on it. Well, you know, if God exists, is a very big, the universe is huge. So God is huge, big, you know. Has it relate to me, a little being on this little planet around an ordinary star? I think that's a big question that I needed to understand and tease out. And, and I did that through starting to go to church again and talking to, to friends who were Christians, going along to their evangelistic meetings when they invited me along, and eventually going to Bible, you know, sitting down and looking at the Bible with people. Uh, that all added to me teasing this out of what it had to do with me and did it make sense of my life, really. Mm. Uh, and I think in the end... It did, but the final thing that tipped me over the edge it, it was an encounter with Jesus. And, and the only way I can describe it is, you know, I was listening to a, a gospel, a kind of Christian rock singer called Larry Norman. One night, back home with, you know, my mum and dad's house in my old bedroom, one night listening to Larry Norman, he had a song called I'm a Servant, about a, a servant who's failed at his job and he thinks he's going to get the sack. He's in trouble. And I was listening to this song, and the only way I can describe what happened to me was Jesus was there, and he said, that's you. I can help you do better. And I said, okay. <laughs> and that was it. That I was in. And uh, that was, that's 40 years ago. Wow. That was the end of a three-and-a-half-year exploration of what I, this got to do with me. Yeah. So part of my start of Christian journey is about science and my experience of science. And so I think you know, rather than push science pushing people away from God, I think there's, there's something in science that actually God can speak to us about faith, about himself. And I guess in messy church, you know, when I do science in messy church, at the end of the experiment, I ask the families what's going on in the experiment. And they come up with some great ideas of how the experiment works, most of them wrong, which is fine because most of science through the centuries has been wrong, been superseded. Yeah. So that, that's fine. But at least this, they're thinking about this experience. Initially, I started, I used the science as a kind of a, an illustration for a Bible story or something like that. And then I changed and I, I started using the science experiments for prayer as a prayer experience. Or I started saying to the group, how does that make you think about God? Or how does it make you feel about God? Yeah. And actually, people started sharing ideas about God. Now, they weren't always, you know, what we might call Christian ideas about God, but they were thinking about it. They were starting to encounter something. And a lot of these people have been way, way back on their journey towards faith. A lot of them hadn't really engaged with the Christian story before. And so, you know, the project that I've been involved in over the last year or so, two years, using imagery of science. And, and you talked about those documentaries that people see on the TV of nature and science, which with the stunning visual imagery. You know, one yes. of my motivations of, of making these films, you know, God saw that it was good films. Yes was to use that kind of imagery and say, how, how, how do you encounter God through this imagery? You know, if God made this, surely we can encounter God through this imagery and we can encounter God through the story of science that this imagery depicts and explains. So 
you know, that's what I'm trying to do, really, to, to say, look, there's no conflict here between science and faith. Actually, science is, is a gift from God, a wondrous gift from God. It helps us to understand the world. And maybe it helps us to encounter God in the wonder of it all, in the in the sheer variety and playfulness of it all. Yeah. And the order that we see. Well, I'm going to let you plug your videos. Because <laughs> I think everybody should see them. They are so professionally made. I have to say the film company, which is the field cast is run by Baptist minister. Andy Kind, he, he's been great in taking my scripts and turning them into something which I, I call a visual feast. I'll let you plug it at the very end of that, okay. all right? <laughs> yeah, that's how I approach science, really. Is It's a window. And nature's a window as well to which we can encounter God. And I, I don't think as Christians, actually, or as if you're not a Christian, we're all aware of that. Yeah. We take it for granted and we, we don't really take which notes of it. Well, going back to your initial thoughts of you were a small little person on a planet that's going around a star. Yeah. What was your conclusion in those three years of chewing it over? How would you explain it now? What's God got to do with me? Or what's my purpose and things? Both, I would have thought, really. Yeah. That's a good question, actually. I mean, it's been 40 years. For over 40 years, I guess, I've I've been encountering God in my life. So maybe this is a cop-out, but I would say I'm still learning what that means, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's why you're the Prime Minister. That is a great answer, Mr. Prime Minister. Oh, that's true. It's, a, it's, it's not a question you, you find a definitive answer to. Yeah. I think the Christian faith is a journey. It's not about believing a set of things. It's about growing in a relationship and an experience of God and trusting God is there and, and looking out for where God turns up in sometimes the most unexpected places. Really. And I guess that's part of that answer, isn't it? What's that got to do with me? Well, 40 years of experience says somehow God thinks I'm important enough. We're all important enough, actually, yes. for him to be involved in, in our lives. But I don't think I'm the only one who's asking that question. You know, I was, I was at a school this week. I work with a group called God and the Big Bang. We, we do science and faith days in primary and secondary school. And I was in a school this week leading a session on, on the universe and the Big Bang and trying to unpack science and faith with that and i showed them this picture which was taken by what's called the james webb telescope the new big telescope beyond the moon you know better than hubble telescope so we're seeing some amazing pictures i showed them this picture of the sky that hubble took last year and i think there's you know, over five thousand galaxies in this picture of the sky and they said oh wow you know that's amazing awful lot of chocolate they said a lot of chocolate thank you thank you good joke and then i say you got to understand what this picture is uh, so say, take a grain of sand in your hand off the beach when you're on holiday. Put it between your fingers. Hold it out at arm's length. That's how big this piece of sky is. It's a grain of sand piece of sky. And there are all these galaxies in that little piece of sky. The wow is even bigger at that point when they realise how small that is and how much is in it. And then I talk to them about what are some of the big questions. Big universe raises some big questions. What are your big questions? So, I, you know, these are... 10 and 11 year olds, you know, I get the typical questions like, how many galaxies are there in the universe? How many grains of sand would it take to fill the universe? Which I had to Google during my lunch break. A lot. But then I get, yeah, 10 followed by 92 noughts. That's how many grains of sand. The estimate, anyway. How can they work that out? Yeah, you can go through the calculation. I won't bore you with the details. <laughs> but then I get questions. That, and these are, you know, 10, 11 year olds, they say, What's it for? What am I for? What's my purpose? So I don't think I'm the only person who's asking that question. And, and then, you know, we explore that towards the end in terms of what the story of science is and what the story of 
how, how the Christian faith uh, in this instance you know, explains how the world came about and try and tease out you know, what we learn from those two stories about the universe as a thing, but also you know, its purpose and our purpose within it, really. Yeah. So you know, this, these are questions we ask from really early on in our journey of life. And yet so often by the time these children get to be 14, the story of faith is nowhere in their lives. They've still got the questions, actually. They've still got those big questions. You know, what's my purpose? And, and maybe we pick that up with so many teenagers suffering difficulties with well-being yes. and mental health issues. The questions are still there, but often faith has gone and there's a separation between faith and science, their experience yes. of the world. There's another reason for trying to work with these people at this younger age is to say, look, you know, this isn't the only story. There's another story that actually speaks to these questions in our lives and can speak through what we see of the universe through science. One of the first books I read, Becoming a Christian, a chap by the name of Josh McDowell, and he wrote a book called Evidence yeah. Demands the Verdict. Yeah, I remember it, yeah. Yeah, and in there he made this very brash statement, which has stayed with me the rest of my life, and that was, um, oh, but what happens if people say, you can't prove God exists through science? And his answer was, well, you can't prove a lot of things. If it's going to be proven by science, you have to recreate it here and now. So you can't, for instance, prove love exists. How are you going to do that? You cannot prove that I, Claudius, sorry, Claudius, without the I bit, he existed because scientifically you can't prove it. There's some truth in that answer. I mean, I would go even further than that, saying actually there's no such thing as scientific proof. Go for it. Tell us more. Science uh, relies on evidence. It's about the balance of evidence. You gain observations. You try and fit them together into some kind of order, into some kind of theory. And that gives you an understanding of how things work. And the more evidence you gather about that theory, the more confident you come at your theory. So it's not proof, it's evidence. It's on the basis of observation and what we can tease out. It's not absolute proof. In maths, you get absolute proofs because maths is about rules, you know, defined rules, which you can prove things against. Yes. Science is experiential in many ways, it's observational. In science, you've got to be always open to actually a new idea not in the uk though surely not <laughs> nothing is absolute in science i always say to people your theory your idea in science is as good as your next observation if your next observation doesn't agree with it you're in trouble you've got to rethink so science science is an evolving and changing phenomena understanding of the world our understanding you know what what we understand about the universe now is sometimes different from what I was taught 40 years ago because we've got better telescopes and better observations. So yes. science moves. Actually, people then get a bit worried when I make the same claim for faith. Faith moves. Faith changes. Yes. Because every time you have a significant experience in your life, birth, death, illness, redundancy, crisis, I think there's possibility there that our experience and understanding of God changes becomes broader, becomes deeper. Therefore, actually, faith changes because faith isn't, to me, about a set of beliefs. I, I mean, I think it is. You know, there are certain things I believe about Jesus which, for me, are important. You know, Jesus is God with us. Jesus died and Jesus raised. But our experience of faith, our living out faith, our understanding of, of who God is, actually, I think shifts as we go through life. So, you know, I said, teasing out the idea of what's that got to do with me, I'm still on that journey. And I guess I'm still on the journey of, of understanding who Jesus is and who God is, and as well. I don't really get that. Faith moves. 
yeah. and like theories. And the reason why I, I was laughing is because I just get the feeling, think of a, a famous broadcasting company from the UK, I don't know, three letters that narrows it down a bit with a B and a C in it. All right, yeah. You, you yeah. get the impression that Darwin's theory, for instance, isn't a theory, it's a fact. And this goes back to how we teach science. When you teach basic science to people, and I'm, I'm more in the physics side of things than the biological side of things, you have to teach basic facts. They have to understand basic principles, and it comes across as quite solid. Mm. The more you learn about science, and especially when you get involved in research, you realise how soft it is. There are some basic principles which are important, which you have to learn, and techniques you have to learn. But actually, the rest of it is pretty fluid. Yeah, I, I hear this thing about Darwin's thing, it's fact, and then the Christians say, oh, no, it's not fact, it's just a theory. I, I just think this is a, a false argument, really. I mean, when Darwin's theory came out, it was embraced by a lot of Christians at the time of, of explaining how the world came to be. It's only been in, since the 1920s when this battle has been on. I don't think it was about the science. It was about how people wanted to interpret the Bible, but that's another big story. It was certainly a bishop, wasn't it? There was some resistance in, in the Darwin you know, when Darwin bruised his, his theory, but a large part of the Christian community embraced the theory, in England at least. So the ideas of evolution have shifted over the last, what, 150 years? The way Darwin saw it working is, is different to the way people understand it working today because we have more in, information about genes and DNA. He, he knew nothing of that. So it, it has shifted in time, but it's still, the idea of evolution still is a way of, you know, it matches the evidence we have of the history of life on the earth. It, it provides an explanation of how life has occurred and changed on the earth through the past 303 billion years, really. And for me, that's a majestic journey. It's a wondrous journey. If, like me, you think God is involved in this, God made this universe, then it's an incredible thing that God has made. Yeah. And for me, it just adds to my wonder of God, really, and my awe of how God has brought things about. Suppose the average would say, oh, well, I'm reading in the press now, but uh, they keep pushing back the boundaries of what's gone, how the world was created. And the further they push it back, as in the more information they've got, the more distant God is. God is hardly involved now. It doesn't exist. And then you occasionally hear, well, actually, this pushing the boundaries back actually proves that God does exist. What do you think? I think you can do this with the Christian faith as well, can't you? If you, if you believe you know, a more literal view of the Bible in how the world came to be. I think you can you almost can put God at the beginning and nowhere else in both those stories. You can push God away. Hmm. You know, we say God, God creates at the beginning. And yet I think God is involved in creating all the way through the story, however you believe it. God is still involved in creating now, in sustaining creation, in nurturing creation, in redeeming creation. You know, God is not far away. Doesn't doesn't Jesus coming if we're right about Jesus as Christians, he's God with us. He's God come as a human being, in a sense. That, that's a sense of God is closer to the world and closer to us than we could possibly dream of. And that's, that's his choice. That's his grace. That's his love. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think these things push God away. You know, science would say our understanding of the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. The Earth is about four and a half billion years old. I don't think that pushes God further away. For me again, just gives me a sense of, wow, this is amazing. God has been involved in that journey in some way. Says it is a very patient God and is a very creative God. Yes. 
and and he's a god god who picks up the mess because you know it is a story of of things being born and things dying yeah and yet out of death something new often arises and for me personally you see easter is about death and something rising it's about death and life and that is a pattern i can see right through the history of the universe and that says to me god is involved in this god is shaping this journey god's closer than we think in this story a couple more questions then on the similar thing though i wonder how many times have you been asked the question whereby who created god and what do you say you know every time we go to a school especially primary schools this is the question that we always get who created god and what do i say about that <laughs> we've had experience now we can't prove scientifically god exists but on the other hand you know what created the big bang ah well i know the answer to that two atoms flying through the yeah. space <laughs> well actually we don't know what created the big bang we just know that the big bang happened yeah. in a sense and the question who created god it's almost unanswerable scientifically i think it's unanswerable because you're dealing with something which is not the stuff of science science is about the material stuff of the world and god is not that god is beyond that if god is god i i don't think we can answer that from our perspective really i've got enough evidence of the journey of 40 years to believe and trust that god is involved in this world i can't answer that question but i've got enough evidence and experience to trust that he's here involved in our lives now great answer get that do the primary school kids get that answer well they listen and hopefully they get it but you know they're on a journey as well they've got they've got questions that i'm not sure if we're out to give them answers at times when we do this i think we're out to get them to think and broaden their thinking and maybe we add a little bit to the answers they're going to find out as they go on their journey of life see what i've really liked so far the thing that's really struck me was in my language my janet and john language that faith moves and you can run yeah. that in parallel science because science and theories yeah. move and i've had experience of chatting to scientists in the past on a plane many years ago that i shared yeah. a story with that yeah. you know if you come up with a theory you then spend the rest of your life to get the evidence to disprove it there's some truth in that there's an excitement in in something proved to be wrong and you discover something new that that's exciting if the science is allowed to move forward if you're allowed to yeah. move forward in your business and come up with new yeah. ideas or expand Surely that's the same with faith. Yeah. That's surely it. And if we're going to yeah. go back to the Bible and what the Bible says, mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to this, but you've been a scientist. Is there anything in the Bible that we can say, oh, look, science exists. Look, there's a story here. This is science. What can we say? I mean, science is, is a, a fairly modern word. It's only really been used for the last 200 years. Before that, we talked about natural philosophy. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, science as a modern phenomenon is, you know, came up, you know, about 1300, 1200, 1300 in that period. Although you see hints of it back in previous cultures, back to the Greeks, in a sense, but they weren't experimentalists. They were more philosophers. So can you see science in the Bible? That's, the Bible for me is not a scientific textbook, but there are hints of it there. There's that story in Genesis 2, where it's a story of the Garden of Eden and God makes Adam from dust and puts him in the garden. And he brings all the ad animals for Adam to name. Yes. That's science. You know, science is about naming things, naming atoms and particles and plants and animals and stars. It's about bringing order through our experience of the world. So for me, there's a hint of science in that. I think, I think the end of the book of Job is a great place to look for science in the Bible. There's a passage in Job 
where and Job didn't, God doesn't speak this. It's one of Job's, the people who are arguing with Job. One of his comforters. Yeah, one of his comforters, the fourth one, the one who yeah. spoke a bit of wisdom. He makes reference to water evaporating from the ground, forming clouds and raining down to the earth. And what he's describing there is what we now call the water cycle. Yes. This is science. They, they understood something about how the world worked back in those days. This is science as well that you, you find in the Bible, which to me is amazing. Shows actually they were equally as bright and as clever as we are. We just have more technology and more instruments. And I don't think those, those final chapters of Job, if, I often say if you want to see the first nature documentary, you, you have to go to the Bible. And it's there in Job because, you know, Job has a lot of questions about life, doesn't he? Yes. And you know what? God never answers him, never gives him a reason, but he takes him on a tour of nature and creation. And at the end of it, Job says, I'd heard of you, but now I see you. And so, you know, this is an impact that science has, can have upon us, enabling us to, to see God. Yeah, there's some of the things I would point to with science in the Bible even though it's not a scientific textbook. Final one then, before we get to find out who your Christian hero is. <laughs> As uh, someone who likes physics, yeah, studied physics along with astronomy, what I like about Philip in the Bible is that he was the first ever at least transported person, just like Star Trek. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty, yeah. and immediately he ends up with the Ethiopian eunuch. Yes. So my $64,000 question to you is, how close are we to being able to teletransport nowhere <laughs> but i've never oh. i've never thought about the story of philip in those terms of a star trek transport i don't think you, you people listening to this won't see behind me but i've i've got a uh, a jigsaw of the star trek enterprise on the wall behind yeah, me yeah yeah star trek is a big a big part of my my life so no we're, we're nowhere near being able to do that and maybe never ever will there's a great story told about a star trek convention when Gene Roddenberry was on the panel and there were some fans there. You know, Star Trek's great in, in using terminology, which is kind of draws on science. This is what science fiction does, doesn't it? It draws on our current ideas of science and projects it out into the future. And there's always this thing on Star Trek with Transporter called the Heisenberg Compensator. <laughs> you know, there's a principle in, in physics called the, the uncertainty principle, which says you can't measure the position and the velocity of a piece of matter at the same time. You can know one or the other, but you can't know the other. If you know, you know its position, you, you don't know its direction of travel or speed. If you know its direction, travel and speed, you don't know where it is. And so this is a problem with transported technology of mapping out every particle in your body and beaming it. So these fans say to Gene Roddenberry, Mr. Roddenberry, can you explain to us how the Heisenberg compensator works in the transporter system? He leans to the microphone and says, very nicely, thank you. And that's it. <laughs> oh, brilliant answer. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he named Captain Kirk yeah. because he knew that Kirk was a Gallic or Gaelic word for church. Really? That's what I was told. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. The second thing I'm going to have to Google then, isn't it? Yeah, that's two things. I'm a bit of a Star Trek nerd. I'll have to, have to Google that as well as Dave Gregory and XTC. You'll have to let me know on the answer <laughs> on that one. Okay. For the remaining time, Dave, listen, we could carry on on this. It is fascinating. I'm hoping that people listening are getting a, a glimpse of don't despair, don't give up, yeah. you know? Just embrace what's going on and that faith moves. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Thank you. So, Dave Gregory, who is your Christian hero, please? Um, I, I was a bit cheeky on this because I wanted to choose a category of, of people. The audience say, yes, you can. Okay, that's great. 
before I trained to be a minister, when I was still working at the Met Office, I led, I led a church plant in a school for four years in Bracknell. After about three years of this, I got ill. <laughs> my blood pressure went through the roof. My heart was irregular. I was close to having a heart attack. And this was what when I was about going up for 40. And so I was, I was kind of signed off, signed off work for a couple of weeks. And I had to take a break from leading the church for about, about uh, three months, really. I was on the cost actually of applying to train as a Baptist minister when this happened. So it was, oh, wow. it was, a, it was a pretty difficult moment because I thought probably that route was going to be close to me. You know, so I was told to sit back and relax for a couple of weeks. So I did, I did something which was totally stupid. I picked up a book by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Church. You know, yeah, I'm off with high blood pressure and a regular heartbreak and I'm, I'm reading a book about being driven. This was not a sensible thing to do. Um, and I guess I was in a phase, and, and I think churches often are in this phase, looking for magic bullets, you know, magic techniques to how to make your church go better and grow faster and be better at mission. I've decided there are no magic bullets. There are no magic solutions uh, over the years. So I, I, I read less books like this now. Mm. But I, So I read this book, and um, I turned back to the front cover, you know, the first pages of it, and there are dedications in there to it. And his dedication struck me. It stopped me dead. Because his dedication said to bivocational pastors in small churches who are the true heroes of the faith. And, and, and I was, you know, I was working full time at the office. I was leading this church plant. Yeah, I was a bivocational pastor, I guess, at that time. And it, it just struck me. And so I think some of my heroes of the faith are pastors in small churches, sometimes part time, sometimes full time, who, you know, are there for years and years and years. You know, just serving the people, loving the people, teaching, serving community. That takes a lot of courage to do that. And, you know, in our Baptist family of, you know, 1800 churches, about half of those churches are less than 40 people who go along. Yeah, yeah. And some of them have ministers, some of them don't have ministers. Uh, and it's not easy. It's not easy when a world says, you know, including the Christian world says your biggest successful when you're in a little church. And I, I remember feeling that way because I went from a, you know, in that setting with a church plant, medium-sized, successful church. You know, I, I went to pastor a small church of 30 people in my training church. And I learned an awful lot with those people. And they were great. And they loved me to bits. They loved my family to bits. And that was great. But, you know, I went from a, a, a larger church, this small church, and I was surrounded by bigger churches. It's not easy. Mm. it's not easy when you don't have much resources so these kind of people you know i admire and you know i have friends in this position who are ministers i admire them who keep on working and serving and actually they they make a difference to people's lives in the church and in the community and they need to be celebrated more so they'd be my heroes and i guess i'm thinking of this now because i went to a funeral back at, at the church in bracknell that kind of mentored me and sent me off to yeah. train the minister where i was doing the church plan and it was a gentleman there called frank who he and his wife were our house group leaders in the 90s when we first had a young family you know he died just after christmas age 103 he was a founder member of the church back in the late 50s he'd been faithful to that church for all those years these people are heroes yeah you know, unknown like that servant girl in name and unknown often in history but you know they're just faithfully serving god people church community year in year out and i admire that i admire that 
but you were able to name one, which is good. Frank. Yeah, Frank. What was Frank's surname? Uh, Rowe. Frank Rowe. Yeah. Faithfully for 40 odd years. Yeah. Looking after a little yeah. church. Yeah. It's amazing what's going to come out of that church. But I don't know yet. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't a little church, actually. It was a medium sized church. But, <laughs> but, you know, he's been faithful to that. But, yeah. But you, you meet these people in small churches, don't yeah. you? They've been there for years and years and years. And they've been there all the changes of pastors, all the changes of yeah. style and the ups and downs, they've, they've stuck with the church. And there's something I admire about that. Well, we were talking about faith moves mm. and science moves, and there you go. My rule is you have to name a Christian hero, and I have to move with the times now, Dave. I have to let you come up with an alternative answer. Oh, thank you for that. So we'll find out whether I keep it in or not when I come to editing it. All right. <laughs> it's up to you. I trust you. Well, that's very kind of you. Can I just say the picture that you were describing at the back, which is of USS Enterprise? Yes. Uh, it's a jigsaw. Is it a Haynes Manual logo I see in the top right hand corner? Yeah, it's a Haynes Manual cutaway cross section of the original Enterprise from the original series. You know, that is class. For those that don't know what Haynes Manual is, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, if you had to tinker with your own car, you would go to your local car shop and you'd buy this manual for your car, yeah. hardback book called Haynes Manual. I, I have to say, I've never had a Haynes Manual for a car. Haven't you? I've had a Haynes Manual for the Apollo rockets and the Lunar Lander oh, yes. before now. And <laughs> we do have another jigsaw with a Haynes logo on it, which is a cross-section of Thunderbird 2. From oh! For those, for, oh. Those, for those who do not know what Thunderbirds is, it was a 1960s sci-fi kind of puppet series, which was well-made and well-done. A previous episode that went out recently, and I'm going to keep this in because I, I thought it was really funny. And she was lovely. Gladys Ganiel, yeah. great episode for you, those who want to listen to it. She's from America. So she was regaling about her athlete in charge. She runs marathons. And she said, you must have probably never heard of him. I said, what's his name? She said, John Tracy. I said, I know John Tracy. <laughs> and she said, do you know John Tracy? I said, because, you know, he was in charge of Thunderbird 5. Yes. And occasionally, <laughs> she'd be on Thunderbird 4. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would have said I, I knew he was on from the birth five as well. So, you know, you're in good company. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. It's been fantastic. Thank you so well, much for taking your time, Dave. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And, you know, if you want to get a feel of for how I think science can help us to see faith, go and have a look at the films. Can I plug the website? Plug away. So go to www.gstiwg.co.uk and you can see the films of The God Saw That It Was Good resource. Enjoy them. And for those that didn't quite catch it again, what's the address we have to put in? It's www.gstiwg.co.uk. Just think God Saw That It Was Good. Take the first letter of each word. If you Google it, there's now a dedicated website where you can watch the films from. That's even better. Yeah. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Google that. It hopefully takes you to the website. Dave Gregory, not that Dave Gregory, but the other Dave Gregory. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Great to, great to be with you. God bless.